0: I want to invite everybody to turn in their Bibles to 2 Timothy, the book of 2 Timothy. It's near the end of the Bible, if you're not familiar with it. You can turn there. If you'd rather, you can just follow along in the bulletin. But there is a Bible in front of you, and we would love to give that Bible to you as a gift today. If you don't have one at home, please feel free to take the, the Bible in front of you in the pew. Continuing our series uh, in 2 Timothy, our practice here about 70% of the time is to go straight through uh, biblical books, and so that keeps us uh, looking at things that we might be tempted to skip over, uh, hard things in Scripture. Uh, There's one uh, verse in today's passage which is very challenging Uh, and makes us fearful, and so we're going to be talking about that today, but overall, this is a section of Scripture that is encouraging to us to remember Jesus Christ may seem obvious that that is what we are doing, but I think that we need to hear the challenge. So we're going to start in verse 8 of chapter 2. Let's read together. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the Word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a a sophomore in college, I spent a summer interning at a a box factory, um, and uh, we made corrugated cardboard boxes. It was a summer of 80-hour work weeks, uh, hard labor, machine labor, um, made a lot of money, but it was grueling. And it was uh, dangerous, dangerous work, so dangerous that every single morning at uh, the factory when I would go in, we would have a safety meeting. And the safety meeting involved watching uh, like a 15-minute video, (coughs) pardon me, a video um, that featured some kind of procedural process where we're told the correct procedures for how to operate around these machines, how not to get hurt, et cetera, et cetera. And they were telling us that these were powerful, <coughs> these are powerful machines. <coughs> Pardon me. But when you work there uh, eight to 12 hours a day, it's, it's easy to forget how powerful they are. Even though you've just seen these, these videos, these safety videos, and uh, maybe even heard like horrific stories of people losing a hand or losing an arm or a leg in one of the machines, <coughs> it can still be very difficult to stay in that posture of alertness. <coughs> I think I got some water on the way here. I apologize. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. So I remember one time um, I was working on the floor on one of these 12-hour shifts, and I was singing to myself (laughs) because everybody has earplugs in, and it's an extremely loud environment, and nobody can hear if you're singing or not, so that's what I would used to do. I would sing, and I was not paying attention, and I started to feed cardboard into a machine that um, was grinding up the cardboard. That's what it was there for. It was uh, a machine that would shred the cardboard scraps that were left over. And I started feeding pieces into it and I was not paying attention. And I was singing to myself. And um, there's a little arm that came down to press the cardboard before it goes into the machine. And I stuck my hand underneath it and the tip of my fingernail got caught on that. And just for a second, My hand started going towards that grinder, and I was able at the last minute to pull it out. And I was the junior person on that machine, and the guy saw, the other guy I was working with, saw me do that, and he shook his head, put his head down in his hands, and thought, That almost just happened. You were almost one of those people in the video. I knew that's what he was thinking. You know, you can be around something very powerful so often that it loses its sense of power. I think we know this is true. Through familiarity, through routine, through um, all different kinds of things, just life disrupting us, we can be around something powerful and forget that it is powerful. Paul then gives us this singular command this morning. There's one command in these verses that we've read. He says, remember Jesus Christ. There's something that you're not going to forget. You don't need to forget. It is to remember Jesus Christ. To basically ask us the question, have we lost the, the sense of Jesus' gripping power on us as we sang earlier Jesus you have taken hold of me and in your grip of grace I'm finally free that grip of God's grace is something that we can forget and Paul is anxious for us to remember and for Pete, for Timothy who he's writing to to remember Jesus He's in good company when it comes to the rest of the Scriptures because the Scriptures tells us often that we need to remember things. It's one of the essential biblical commands. Going back to the redemption story of the Old Testament, The redemption story of the New Testament is Jesus dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. That's the story that we remember most often. But for an Israelite who was reading the Old Covenant, they would have had a different redemption story. They would have remembered the Passover. The time when they were in Egypt in slavery and God brought them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and He accomplished this work of salvation. And when we look in Exodus and we see that story, It basically tells you you need to keep this Passover so that when your child asks you about why we do this practice, you can tell them that we were slaves in Egypt and that we were redeemed. Even about the law itself. A little later in Israel's story when Israel had been freed from slavery in Exodus 20, we get the law. And then repeated later in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5. And in Deuteronomy, we're told again, why were they given the law? So that when the child says... Why do we practice these things? Why do we um, believe these things? You can tell them about being slaves in Egypt. And so the law and the Passover were a call to remember. The fourth commandment itself, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Holy. Later in Israel's story, when you had Joshua, they crossed into the Promised Land. And when they crossed into the land, they set up stones of remembrance at Gilgal. And they said, this is so. When your children ask you about your story, you can tell them. You can remember what has happened. And on and on and on it goes. And Paul here picks up the theme of remembrance in the Scripture. And he doesn't tell them to remember the Passover. And he doesn't tell them to remember the law. And he doesn't tell them to remember the crossing of the Jordan or to remember the Sabbath. He actually points to the thing that is a summation and a fulfillment of all of those things. Jesus is the new Passover. He is... The fulfillment of the law. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who brings his people into the promised land. And so on this side, he says simply, Remember Jesus Christ. There are three things that help us remember Christ. I want us to look at today. Look at who he is, what he is worth. Secondly, And thirdly, what He gives. Who He is, what He's worth, and what He gives. First, who He is. Paul tells us a couple of things about this Jesus Christ that we are supposed to remember. He calls it His Gospel. Look at verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached In my gospel. Now, Paul is always talking about the gospel. He's talking about the good news. That's what the word gospel means. Of salvation. And sometimes Paul takes a paragraph or even a long sentence in Greek that goes a couple of chapters long to describe what the gospel is. And sometimes he shortens it. And here may be the shortest, if not one of the shortest expressions of what the gospel is. He says it boils down to this. It's Christ... Risen from the grave, risen from the dead, and the offspring of David. These two realities about who Jesus is. In fact, it's it's reflected in the name Jesus Christ. Jesus is Jesus' personal name. It was His given name. It's rooted in the word for Joshua. It's the one who saves God's people. So Jesus was His name. Christ was not His last name. Right? Christ is His office. And that office, the Christ, is, is the New Testament word for the Old Testament Messiah. Messiah was the One who was promised. And so even in the name Jesus Christ, you see Jesus, the Man, risen from the dead, and Christ, the, the Promised One. The, the One of the offspring of David. It probably explains why Paul here says Jesus Christ when actually his preferred way of talking about Jesus is to say Christ Jesus. But here he switches it. The rest of the book he says Christ Jesus, but here he says Jesus Christ because he's emphasizing first the resurrection and then that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And so we see two things about who Jesus is. He is the risen one and He is the promised one. He's the risen One and the promised One. The most essential thing that we need to remember Christ is to remember His resurrection. Why would that be the case? Because for the Apostle Paul, it is the linchpin of the Christian faith. If we were to summarize one thing about what the Gospel means, it would be found in the resurrection. As he says in 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain." That's how important it is. That's how essential it is for us to remember. If it's not true, then it's not worth anything that we're doing here. My preaching, my Gospel message to you is in vain. And your faith is silly if the resurrection didn't happen. Why did the resurrection have such a privileged position? Why does he say that's the most essential thing? Because the resurrection is both our spiritual hope and our physical hope. And Paul talks about both of these things in his writings. He talks about the resurrection as our spiritual hope. Romans 6, he says, if you've been buried with Him in baptism, then you are raised to newness of life with His resurrection. It's a spiritual reality. Paul often does this. He says the resurrection is proof that you have new life. If you have died with Him, then you will live with Him. He does it a little later in this passage in verse 11. If we have died with Him, we also will live with Him. It's a spiritual hope. But it's more than just a spiritual hope. It's a physical hope. In 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection. Indicating that there is a harvest to come a fuller harvest where we participate in the physical bodily resurrection. It is the hope for Rhonda Shank that we celebrated in her funeral yesterday when she closes her eyes in death. She has a hope of the bodily resurrection and she waits for that even though she is in the presence of the Lord. And so Paul says, If there's one aspect of Christ that you need to be careful not to flatten, not to put down, and not to forget, it is the resurrection. Christ is the risen one, and he is the promised one. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Jesus, the Christ. The Christ means, as we've said, the Messiah. He is the offspring of David. Why does that matter to Paul? What is its significance? Well, it's significant because he's saying that God has been faithful to His promises. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, there is a covenant that God makes with His people, with David, and then His people after Him. He says, you will always have a descendant on the throne who will always reign. And that is why when we come into the New Testament, the Matthew and Mark and Luke and John spend all of this time telling us that Christ came from the line of David. He is David's son, yet David's Lord. And we hear these two aspects that He is risen from the dead and that He is the Messiah. And I don't think that it thrills us sometimes the way that it did the first who heard this revelation of who Jesus is. You think about Luke chapter 24 when Jesus has been raised from the dead and He's on the road to Emmaus with two of His disciples who don't yet recognize Him and yet they've seen and heard that He has died. And as He is walking with them and talking with them, He says this, "...was it not necessary that the Christ..." Again, the word Messiah there, "...should suffer these things and enter into His glory." And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This risen one then talks about being the Messiah. The risen one is raised from the dead, then says, But this is what was expected because I'm from the line of David. He summarizes himself the way that Paul does here, risen from the dead offspring of David and what is their response their response is that their hearts burn within them and later they don't know it's Jesus until later but then they reflect back on it and they remember it was when he was that our hearts not burn within us did not burn within us when we heard him described as the Messiah see they remember Jesus the risen one the promised one. And it burned within them. That is what Paul is trying to communicate to Timothy here. Remember who he is, but also remember this, secondly, what he's worth. Look at verse 9. Preached in my Gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the Word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. For Paul, this reality of who Jesus is, this risen One and promised One, meant that he was willing to suffer for the name of Christ. To be associated as a criminal. Bound with chains as a criminal. The word criminal there is the word for a violent criminal. It's the, the murderer, the, the traitor, the enemy of the state type of criminal. And that is who he has come to be associated with. And that makes sense historically because Nero, the emperor of Rome, has just burned Rome and he has blamed it on the Christians. And so Paul very likely was associated as an enemy of the state. And Paul says, worth it. Remembering Jesus Christ is more than just a theological reflection on His resurrection from the dead. Did it happen or not? Do I believe it? His promised, being the promised one. Do we believe that He is the Messiah? That can be theoretical. It can be in our heads. But Paul says, it's something worth staking your life on. He's doing this and saying this for the sake of the message to the elect. And he's saying it's worth giving my life over for this Word that cannot be bound. I can be bound, but the Word cannot be bound. And so he's saying, in effect, that Jesus is so good that to remember Him should be so good to us that He's worth whatever cost it cost us to endure with Him to the end. I don't know how much it will cost each one of us to follow Christ. It is something individual and somewhat generational. We are not in prison this morning. Um, However, I do think that often this happens to us. When we have these moments where we are with other people, or perhaps those who don't follow Christ, and something puts our faith in a compromising position, And we have this moment where we feel the pressure and think, is this the moment to say something? Is this the moment to do something? Is this the moment to distinguish myself? And what we often do in those circumstances is to find ways to avoid that pressure. Where Paul says, I'm willing to be counted as a criminal. Remembering Jesus means that we believe things about who He is, but also that we see that He's worth everything, whatever suffering it might bring to follow Him. The third thing we need to see about remembering Jesus is this, what He gives. We need to remember what He gives. Paul ends this passage with a poem or a song probably in wide use, perhaps used in churches that he plants in their liturgy, in their time together. And he says, this saying is trustworthy. Verse 11, If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. He tells us in a nutshell what Christ has given to us And it's trustworthy. You need to remember these things. Four things that Christ gives. And they come in two pairs. The first two and the last two. He says first, Christ gives life and then He gives dominion. Verse 11, If we died with Him, we will also live with Him. Again, the same language he uses in Romans chapter 6 to say, if you've died with Christ, if you've been buried with Him in baptism, then you'll be raised to newness of life forever. We've made this point a number of times in studying 2 Timothy as it is a theme for Paul that life is found in Christ. He is the author of eternal life and not just eternal life, but present life. Those who follow Jesus have abundant life. They have died to their sin and lived to Christ. There is no more abundant life than what Jesus gives. You remember that. But not just life. Dominion. The second part, or verse 12, says if we endure, we also will reign with Him. Again, you might expect Paul to say something like, hey, if you endure to the end, then He'll give you that eternal life. Which is what he says in other places in Scripture and is also true. But he doesn't say, if you endure to the end, you'll have life. He's already said, you already have life. He says, if you endure like he is enduring, same word that he used before, where he says, therefore, in verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. He endures for a crown, for reigning, for dominion. It isn't just life. It's more than just eternal rest, though it is eternal rest. It's more than just eternal salvation, though it is eternal salvation. It is the intimacy of co-ruling with Christ, which is what the Scripture again and again tells us is our original design. Back from the Garden of Eden, when we were given dominion to take the world that God had made and to work it and to keep it. And we return to that his viceroys, his co-regents, his authority on this earth when he makes it new. Which means, among other things, that Narnia is true. As I've often said. Because Aslan is king. The lion is the king of kings. But, there are still four thrones in there are Paravel. Narnia still waits for It's children kings and queens. The only rightful seats to those thrones are for the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. He promises life, but also dominion. Those two together. And then He finishes with what He gives us, a warning and security. They come in another pair here. If we deny Him he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. There is first a warning. We need to understand what this phrase means. If we deny him, he will also deny us. It's important to see that Paul here switches the tense of his verb that he's been using throughout to a future tense. What is meant by that is that among other things, is that what he's not talking about a one-time denial. This is not that those who say something against Christ are hopelessly doomed. Sometimes we can think that if we just fall off the bandwagon at one time, then, then, God, then we're, God's done with us when we read verses like this. That's not true. It can't be true because Peter was restored who denied Christ on the night of His crucifixion three times. And then Jesus gave him a threefold reception back in. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Lord, you know that I do. He restores Peter's denial. So this is not that we misspeak some point or that at some point in our life we have denied Christ or at some point we've fallen off and done something we shouldn't have done or said something that identified us outside of Christ. This is the future and final reality. If we deny Him, meaning if we walk away from Him, no longer come to Him, He will deny us. That's intense, Paul. Is this an example of Paul doing something kind of being more intense than Jesus was? No. In fact, he is referencing what Jesus says in Matthew 10. So everyone, Jesus says, who acknowledges Me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father, who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is those who see the gift and walk away, who do not see it and love it and return to Christ, to Christ's presence. Well, what's amazing is that He follows up that warning with immediate security. Do you see it? Verse 13, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Any kind of unfaithfulness, any kind, any amount, any extreme, Jesus can overcome by His own faithfulness. Why? Because He cannot deny Himself How is that a comfort? It means, as He said, if you have died with Him, you also live with Him. It means that we have been united with Christ. If we have been united with Christ, then we are identified with Him. And so even though you bring your unfaithfulness to that union, you bring some level of unfaithfulness, maybe a a great amount of unfaithfulness, maybe a lifetime of unfaithfulness, you bring to that union, it is not bad enough that Christ cannot overcome it because He cannot deny Himself. And therefore, by extension, you, because you are united with Him. And that's why Paul is so confident in Romans 8 where he says, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's not a single thing. How do we understand The tension between the warning and the security. How do I know if I have been just unfaithful or if I have denied him? We wonder does my unfaithfulness reach to the level of denial? It's a good question. But know this this morning it has nothing to do with the level of your sin. Your unfaithfulness cannot cannot outmatch Christ's faithfulness. The question is not how sinful you are. The question is, are you coming back to Christ? Are you still coming back for forgiveness? Or is your life demonstrating a walking away from His presence? A walking away from His people? A walking away from His church? Because as long as you are with Christ, as long as you are holding on to Him, there will always be grace for any unfaithfulness. Always. There will always be an invitation back to Him. Speaking of Narnia, the question itself makes me think we just finished uh, The Magician's Nephew this week. It is C.S. Lewis's second book in the Narnia series, although it happens chronologically first. If you know the story, it's a, it's a prequel. It's, it's before The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. and It involves uh, evil Uncle Andrew who is a magician with evil intent. And his nephew, the magician's nephew, is Diggory. And he is also evil. Because when he goes and travels by ring to... Worlds unknown, he rings a bell that cannot be unrung. And it is the reason why the witch later comes into Narnia. Diggory is at fault. The magician's nephew has been unfaithful. Both are guilty, Andrew for, for messing with the magic in the first place, and Diggory for following it to its conclusion. But the second half of the book is the creation of the Narnian world. And and it's a long, beautiful scene of Aslan the lion creating Narnia. He sings it into creation. And when he's done singing, he immediately says, this beautiful thing that, has, that I've made already has evil in it. Because Diggory is there with Uncle Andrew and he has brought, who would become the white witch, into Narnia. What's interesting to me is that the responses of Diggory and Uncle Andrew perfectly demonstrate this warning and this comfort. What happens to the two of them? Diggory approaches Aslan. And even though he is tempted to hide, run away, lie, he comes, and even though he feels the displeasure, of the lion, he confesses without holding back. And what does Aslan do with that information? He says, he gives him a mission to restore him. And then he says, I will hold off evil from this place for a long time, but when it does come, I will be the one who sacrifices so that it goes away. He puts himself in the place of Diggory. Diggory heard the singing of creation and responded with confession and by moving close to Christ, Aslan. What happens to Uncle Andrew is that he runs away and he hides. And it's beautiful, the way, beautiful and tragic the way that C.S. Lewis writes this. Uncle, from Uncle Andrew's perspective, he goes back to him hiding and cowering. And it says this, when the lion had first begun singing... Long ago, when it was still quite dark, he had realized the noise was a song. Uncle Andrew had realized that it was a song. And he disliked the song very much. It made him think and feel things he did not want to think and feel. Then when the sun rose and he saw the singer was a lion, only a lion, as he said to himself, he tried his hardest to make believe that it wasn't singing and never had been singing only roaring as any lion might in a zoo in our own world. Of course, it can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautiful the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear no singing but roaring. Now the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon, he couldn't have heard anything else, even if he had wanted to. Diggory was unfaithful. But Aslan's faithfulness was more than his unfaithfulness. Aslan said, I will not deny myself. But Uncle Andrew denied that there was even a song in the world. This is the difference. Paul writes so that we would never forget the song. It is God's world. It's our Father's world. And His faithfulness is more than enough for any kind of unfaithfulness we have experienced or perpetrated this week. But we need to make sure that we're still hearing the song. That we come back into His presence. That we confess our sins. That we stay sensitive to Him. And that ultimately, we remember who Christ is. What He has done for us. He has been raised from the dead. He has been the promised One. And He gives us life and dominion and security forever if we walk with Him. Let's pray.